welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people who are trying to live their most fulfilling life, which often tends to be on a much different path than it started out on. Whether it was changing careers, getting laid off from a job which sparked their entrepreneurial journey, getting in the best shape of their life, or breaking through the noise to answer their calling. All of these types of situations and more but they wouldn't have gotten to where they are today if they didn't get started. We talk about the why and the how of it all, all the getting started moments, and the lessons learned along the way. I'm truly grateful to have you listening in on this episode, so let's get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Karen Triger. Let me give you a quick background on Karen before we jump into the episode. After 18 years of practice in law in Seattle, Karen felt an unmistakable call to explore the story of her in-laws, Sam and Esther Goldberg. Educated at Barnard College and New York University Law School, where she was editor-in-chief of NYU Law Review, Trigger made the momentous decision to retire from her law practice and pull together the threads of a family story she had heard for many years. The result of her three-year inquiry is the widely praised book, My Soul is Filled with Joy, A Holocaust Story. In it, Trigger chronicles both Sam and Esther Goldberg's journey, including Sam's escape from the death camp Treblinka, as well as her family's experiences in Poland when they retraced the path from Treblinka to the pit in the Polish forest where they hid until liberation. As Trigger became invigorated and inspired by the people she encountered, Sam and Esther's story became her story too. Since the book's publication, Trigger has crisscrossed the country to bring this compelling story to a wide audience. In June, she traveled to Poland to launch the Polish translation of the book and spoke at the Warsaw Museum of Ethnography and at the Krakow Jewish Festival. She has been named to the Jewish Book Council Authors Network, the Seattle Holocaust Center for Humanity Speakers Bureau, and the University of Washington Advisory Council for the Extension Writing Program. Her perspectives have been shared in the Ford and the Jewish Press. I'm really excited for y'all to listen in on Karen's Just Get Started journey. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Karen Triger. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. You know, when this came across my my radar, it was really interesting in terms of what you've done, how you've like, probably if we talked 20 years ago, you never would have thought of doing something like you, you did. So it's really interesting of kind of how people change in life, how new opportunities come, you know, in terms of the situations you're in. So I'm excited to kind of talk through those different things and kind of give an idea for folks where there's no right or wrong path, right? There's no structure for anyone in life. It's just really where you um, kind of where your heart pulls you a lot of the time. So I thought we'd start and maybe it's a good background, I guess, to before we get into like writing and, and, and the book and everything like that. Talk me a little bit through kind of the, the general upbringing of Karen. You know, you, you went into law school, you were, going, you were a lawyer for, you know, what, 18 years, right? And give me an idea of that. Like, what was your life going to be if we talked 20, 30 years ago? Like, where were you going to go? What was your ambitions at that time? Well, 20, 30 years ago, let's see, I've been married for 36 years and my oldest child is 32. So 30 years ago, I had already, I'm from Seattle. 
And I had, I went East for undergraduate school and then law school, both in New York City. I worked for a Senator on Capitol Hill in between, because I thought I might be interested in a career in politics. Mm. Um, actually working in politics changed, changed my mind. Um, <laughs> didn't love it. So, uh, but I was already in law school. And so I'm like, hey, I'm in law school. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a lawyer. My dad's a lawyer. My brother was already a lawyer. So like, there was a very good family, family tradition mm. of, of, of law as a, as a, as a very, meaningful, interesting, and rewarding career. So, um, so yeah, so I was in law school. I did super well in law school as the editor of the law review. And that year was a fa fantastic year for me because I was pregnant with my first child and the editor of the law review. Mm. So that was a very interesting combination. Um, but then when I came back to Seattle, I started practicing in a lovely, large, large law firm had, um, my first child actually before we came back to Seattle, but then had a, two more kids in pretty close proximity. Um, so 20 years ago, I would have said to you, yeah, my career is going to be a combination of mothering and lawyering. And um, I started out wanting to do a healthcare practice um, and that took a shift because um, actually, just honestly, I did not like the partner in charge of the healthcare practice. I did not get along with him. He was not my kind of guy. So I shifted to a business practice, which was fine. Um, but then like a strange thing happened, which was not strange, was challenging. <laughs> my oldest daughter, the one I gave birth to right at the end of law school, uh, when she was four, and I was pregnant with my third, uh, came down, was diagnosed with leukemia. Mm. And so that threw, threw me sort of my career for a loop because I'm, I'm, well, I'm married, I'm married to a physician. One of us had to stay home and take care of this child. And I wanted to do that. So I did that. And that staying home period ended up stretching out for 10 more years. And so I was home for 10 years doing kids. I ended up having a fourth kid and then I was ready to go back to work. And I was like, okay, how, now I have to reimagine myself. Um, and what do I want to do? And so I reimagined myself as a lawyer and went into um, elder law and I became an elder law attorney and I worked with families and older people to help them as their parents plan and as they unfortunately get older and then pass away. So it was a very rewarding, um, you know, 15 years of a, of a career. Um, I was very involved in the state state bar association and became, you know, chairperson of our section and just met a lot of amazing people and did a lot of really good work. Hmm. But, but here we, here I was now in my fifties, my youngest child was graduating high school. And I saw that sort of light at the end of the tunnel that we see when, when our youngest is about to leave home mm -hmm. and there's going to be much less parental responsibilities and empty nest. And I had, I had had a dream. My dream really for 30 years had been that the story of my in-laws experience during the Holocaust and during World War II would be written down in a book. Actually, it should be a movie, but that someone should write it in a book. And um, I just didn't know who that would be. It wasn't going to be me when I was practicing law and having children and my life was pretty crazy. Um, but then after, honestly, 30 years, I realized no one else is going to do this. There is nobody else that's going to write this book. They were already dead. They died some, my mother-in-law 22 years ago and my father-in-law like 17 years ago. So they were gone. 
they didn't write their story down. Um, I did not want the story to be lost. And then something else that happened to like push me to that change moment. Cause there's always right. Something that takes you over the cliff and to just, re- you know, reveal something in- from inside of me. Um, it was the death of my own father. He died mm. and uh, he died about seven years ago. And that was really shook up my world. And um, we were very close. And I just had to reimagine, not reimagine, I had to rethink what is the rest of my life look like? Do I want to keep practicing law and have this life, which was lovely? Or do I want to do the, the thing that I've been thinking about and wanting to do for you know 20 years? Mm. And I decided that this, that my dad would say to me, this is your time. You don't know how long you're going to live. We none of us know how long we're going to live. Take advantage of it. If it's what you've been dreaming of doing, just do it. So that is really what what pushed me over over the cliff of the dis, that decision moment of change. Interesting. And I want to get back to that for a second. I'm curious, and and that's a really good overview. I think that helps us, you know, lay the breadcrumbs out to you know how you got to the point. How how many times I guess did you think of writing this book? in the past, you know, 30, whatever year, because you probably, you knew your in-laws for how many years, right? 20-ish plus. How did you think about it a lot? Like, oh, this is an interesting story. Like, this is really fascinating. Why is this not being written? Like, how many times did you think of like, this is what I want to do? Or did it just hit you very later on? I thought that the book needed to be written every time we went to visit them or every, they lived in Miami when I, when I joined, they, they lived in New York as, when they first came to America in 1949. Then they retired down to Miami. So when I joined the family, they were already retired in Miami Beach, and um, we would go visit them at least at least twice a year. And sometimes they came to visit us. And every time we were together, and especially honestly, the holiday of, of Passover is is right around the corner. And it was at the Passover Seder that Sam would tell his most detailed stories about his time in Treblinka, in the death camp Treblinka because he was a slave there. And of course, Passover is the, is the, the holiday of the, the Jewish people the, where we celebrate our exodus from our slavery of Egypt into freedom. And it's, that's really how that holiday is celebrated. And he saw his own escape from Treblinka. He was part of an uprising there in August of 1943. He saw his escape as his own personal exodus. And that was something that he would talk about what it was like to live in that place of horror, what it was like to escape from that place of horror. So every time one of these stories would come up, I'd be like, geez, Louise, you know, someone, this just has to be written down. But again, and I said to myself, you should do it. But then I'm like, no, I can't, you know, I'm not a writer. I'm too busy. I got a law practice, you know, whatever. So I would talk myself out of it every time. That's what happened. Mm. Did uh, and you said they never documented any of the any of the stories. It was more just word of mouth. Like they're they're just talking through the stories. No one ever actually documented, wrote it down, took notes, anything like that. That was all after they had passed. They did. My father in law did do an interview, a video interview with um, the Shoah Foundation, which their big project was to go around and find as many Holocaust survivors as they could mm-hmm. and interview them on video. And all okay. those all those interviews are stored over in Los Angeles. Um, but of course, you know, we got the videotape of it and it was, but it was in Yiddish. 
my father-in-law spoke Yiddish in the, 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 the language of Jews in Poland before the war was Yiddish. So my in-laws spoke Yiddish to each other. My husband spoke Yiddish. I just would just nod, you know, I don't, don't speak Yiddish. Right. So, um, I told my husband at the time, this is a long time ago. And I said, you know, you've got to translate that interview because our children are not going to understand it and it's going to be lost if it's just in Yiddish. So he did years ago. So when I started out, I had Sam's interview that had been translated into English and I had actually typed it all out. And then uh, my mother-in-law did one interview with my, she really, there are certain Holocaust survivors that will talk about their experiences and certain, and many, many that, that won't and never do. She was one that never wanted to talk about it. But my sister-in-law, God bless her, got her to sit down and talk about it one time. So I had that. That was in English. Um, so I had that. So that's really what I had to start with. And that is where I started. And I built out from there trying to fill in the gaps and do the research and interview the people. And it was just so, so horrifying and, and exhilarating at the same time. You know, you talked about that point. There was that 10-year gap. And obviously, you're, you know, with, with your daughter... Uh, that you were staying home with. So yet you, you, you weren't doing any law at that time, right? You were fully home and with the family did in some downtime moments, did you consider starting to write or explore the idea? Cause you said that you had that idea for a while. Did you explore writing it at that time or you maybe had a little more time in some downtime periods or was it not again, even a thought of actually, you know, cause it, I think if I'm picking up um, some of the things you're saying is almost, you didn't have the confidence. Like I'm not a writer. I'm not, I can't do this. You know, was that part of the, I guess the, the, the pause to wait down the road. Definitely. And in fact, after my husband translated that, that interview, um, I sat down and I tried to write something and I wrote like a chapter about Sam and a chapter about Esther. And I started just to try to put some of the pieces together. And then I finished kind of what I was working on and I, I did some work on it. Um, and I read it and I'm like, this just sounds like, like a legal memo. This is just not a book. This, right. this is not going to be a book until I'm ready to make a big shift and, and learn how to write like in a way that people are going to be interested in. Yeah. So I, I, I did it and I put it away and, um, I actually went back to that when I finally made the decision and I was like, yeah, this is just not something that could be published. It was nice to have the information in one place that I had kind of gathered some of the things and put them in a place, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, something that I could certainly publish, but it was a, it was a launching pad. So that was great. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I did was I took a writing course okay. at the, here at the university of Washington. I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta take a writing course. So I took a year long writing course and used it as a wonderful outlet to learn how to write better. And um, also I did the hardest, I thought the hardest chapter chapter was going to be the chapter about Treblinka because mm-hmm. how do you try to cap- encapsulate what a death camp was in a chapter when, I mean, there's books and movies, there's, you know, but my focus wasn't just Treblinka, but it had to be a key part of the book. So I used the opportunity of the writing class to, to actually draft that chapter and then get feedback and redraft it. And, you know, by the end of that year, I had, it turned into two chapters and I had, you know, pretty solid two chapters uh, experience. Mm. What was the decision to actually go to a writing course and not 
I don't know, figure it out yourself, do some online, you know, type work. I don't know. What was the, was there something you decided like, this is for me, how I am as a person, this was the right direction and any clarity there you can give? Um, yeah, I think that I didn't even think about going online. Um, to be honest, I just thought, oh, I'm going to look at the university and see. I mean, I went online to look at their at their courses and they have this extension program. I kind of knew about the extension program. It's for people after, it's not for college students. It's for people after college. And they had just the perfect course. As I, as I like look through the, the listings, they had, um, it's called creative nonfiction. And that's really, when I, when I looked at the, I'd never heard of that before, but when I looked at the description of what that is, because um, I wanted to be as true to the story and the historical facts as possible, because really part of what I wanted to do was to put their story in historical, their stories in historical context. Um, but I also knew that there were parts of the story that I was going to have to fill in. And that's what creative nonfiction really is. If there's stuff that you don't know, there's ways to signal the reader that you're, you're now kind of making this up you know? And so um, it just was perfect. I was like, yeah, this is for me. And I also really loved the idea of sitting in a room with, you know, it's hard to think of it now after a, bit, a year of pandemic living, but to sit in a room with other people who are also passionate about either writing or learning how to write better and sharing, I knew there would be sharing of materials and sharing of writing. And it was exciting for me. So I want to go back just for a minute because so this this whole point, because again, these shifts that we make in life, these dramatic shifts, because you could have just went and said, yeah, you know, it's a good idea, but eh, I don't really have the time to write it. And you could, you know, be practicing law still. What was the ultimate thing that put you over the edge to take that leap of faith on yourself and say, this is something I'm going to do? Do you remember like those internal, that self-talk that you had that pushed you over the edge to make this decision? Yeah, it really went back about a year after my dad died. And um, I just, I started writing in a journal to sort of help me develop, you know, um, like a diary kind of, you know, to help me process my own feelings. Mm -hmm. And um, as I was doing it, it just, you know, you get into that zone where you're just in, you've, you've actually gone to a space that's true for yourself. And I just started crying one day and just like bawling my eyes out. And I'm like, and then I'm writing and I'm like, and afterwards I like, I put it away and then I reread it. And it was just clear that I needed to, this was what I, this was what the right thing to do was. I mean, that was really the moment. And then interesting, I had, once I decided in my own mind that this was what I wanted to do, I couldn't, I didn't talk about it with anybody. I had to just, not my husband, not my kids, nobody, I just had to, I lived with it for like six months. I'm not kidding. Like for six months, I just let mm -hmm. that idea sit with me. And then at the end of the six months, I remember it was, it was autumn, it was fall. And my husband and I were sitting outside and I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to tell him we were having coffee or whatever. It was a beautiful yeah. day. And I told him, I said, I know, I know what I want to do right now. I want to make this shift. And I want to write your parents' story. And then I was just quiet. And he was like, oh, okay. You know, so it was, it, that's, that's, that's really the process. It wasn't 
one day and then I just like said, okay, I'm done with my law practice. And I mean, also, of course, I had, I couldn't just do that. I had to transition out of my law practice. Once I told my, my people in my law firm, they were very supportive. It was a small, small law firm, um, a boutique elder law, law firm. And um, they were all super supportive. And, but I had to, you know, I had to transition my clients and, you know, so it wasn't like I just left one day. So, um, but yeah, it was that moment when I, when I told, when I was, well, the moment was when I was writing in my diary and thinking about my dad and his death, because, you know, when you write a, when you write a book and then, and then of course it made me think about Sam Minester's death and the fact that they're not here to tell their own story. And, um, you know, when you look death in the face, you're like, yeah, we're not going to live forever. And then I thought for two things, I thought one, this story needs to live forever. And secondly, if I write the book, in a sense, I live forever because people will read the book. Maybe a hundred years from now, someone will still pick up the book and, and read it and learn all about my in-laws and then conversely all about me. So it was kind of like a, you know, one of those moments that just, that was it. Yeah. And it's just interesting as humans in general, because everyone has their own speed and different stuff. It took for, for what you were comfortable with, with the law, and then you had all this stuff with your family happened, what have you, but just, it took you that long to make the decision of I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. And then once you did, it was just like clear. It seems like as clear as day, like this is what I, I'm meant to do. Like I, I got to tell this story. So it's just kind of cool how sometimes it doesn't always come right away. Right. Yeah. The um, <clears throat> what about the process of writing? So you talk about obviously going and taking the course and, and kind of learning creative writing and stuff, but like the process of, because it is a nonfiction, like the data gathering, did you, who did you interview? How did you go through that process? Um, I, that's what I'm really curious about. Cause obviously the, the main characters were, were, were no longer on the earth. Right. So it was, um, it was, it was, it was great. It was really, it took me three years start to finish. Um, and what I did was I started with their interviews and then I just said, okay, I got to fill in some gaps here. And first I just started reading historical, getting my, like, um, we all, I mean, I know world war II, I know, you know, some Holocaust history, but I really, really started to dig deep into Holocaust history, world war II history, Holocaust memoirs, trying to get, I read every memoir that's been written about Treblinka, Mm -hmm. everything. My in-laws ended up hiding in the forest after after my father-in-law escaped from Treblinka that's where he met my mother-in-law she'd already been hiding in the forest for a year and um he she so she took him and saved him by allowing him to hide with her because there had been some there were some non-Jewish Christians the Stish family that was helping her and so they ended up living in a pit in the forest for a year they dug a pit and they lived in that forest they camouflaged the top and that's how they lived like honestly, like, like, like animals for a year with the Stish family, helping them with food and, you know, whatever else they could help them with, even though it was, ex- it was extremely dangerous. So I knew that I was going to have to first fill in my knowledge gap. That was the first thing, which I, I did. And then I knew that I was going to have to go to Poland. And I really wanted to figure out, I knew that there was this woman named Helena who had helped. And I knew that they had lived in a pit in the forest because they had talked about that. And I wanted to see if I could find that house where Helena lived, um, assuming, I mean, she's obviously dead, but anyway, that was my goal. So I started interviewing different people. And of course I called my, my sister's-in-law and one of my sister's-in-law, the older one, 
um, said, you know, when my father died in his apartment, I found these letters and they're in Polish. I saved them. I don't know who they're from. I don't know what they say, but maybe they'll help you. And so I said, oh my gosh, send them over. And so she sent them to me and I had somebody help me translate them. And they were letters from my in-laws. Well, they were from the Stish family to my in-laws, but they, after the war, they corresponded for years and years and stayed in touch. And my in-laws would send them, send them a little bit of money when they could and send them like under, under communist rule in Poland, which after World War II was under communist rule until 1989, um, you couldn't get certain medicines and it was hard to get certain things and they would send them the things that they needed. So they really maintained this really intense relationship with them. And so the letters, through the letters, I was able to find in Poland the three surviving children from the two Stish families. There was one woman who was 90 and then two brothers who were from, from, they were cousins from the other family in their 80s. And so when I went to Poland, we got to meet these three surviving children of the, of the families. And they were, so once, once it became clear that this was going to happen, my husband decided to join me on the trip and all four of our kids decided to join us on the trip. So it was a, a phenomenal family experience. Mm-hmm. And, but when we were there, we talked with them for you know hours and hours and hours, and they filled in a lot of material for me as the writer. I got a ton of more information about what that was like during that two years for my mother-in-law and one year for my father-in-law. And um, not only that, they took us out to the forest after we were done talking in their little living room. And mind you, we got to meet like three generations of their family. Everybody came to meet the Goldberg family. So um, we went out into the forest and this man who was 85, who was 10 years old during the war, led us straight down the path to show us where the pit was. Mm. Wow. We couldn't believe that it was still there. We were like, what? Like, how could that be? He's like, oh yeah, it's, it, I can show it to you. And we're like, whoa. So we all went and like, we were, we were, it was like silence as we walked like 15 minutes basically through the forest. And like, if you've ever seen a Holocaust movie, which, you know, there's so, so many Holocaust movies, this looked like a Holocaust movie. The trees in Poland, like they have a certain look. And even my oldest daughter kind of whispered to me, she goes, it, it looks like a Holocaust movie here. And I'm like, we're in it, the movie right now. <laughs> so wow. it was this incredible experience of going and then seeing the, the pit where they lived. And um, so, you know, it was, that was a big, big fill in the gap experience. And we got to go also to, to see Sam's hometown, which was a tiny farming village that's still there. And Esther's hometown, which was also a small town, but bigger than a farming village. And um, so we got to fill in kind of what I got to fill in, like, what do those really look like? What does it Mm -hmm. feel like? And then um, I interviewed a bunch of people, Sam, both Sam and Esther, they had large families before the war and they were all murdered by the Nazis during the war. Yeah. And so they were the sole survivors from their, both of their families, Um, except Sam had one and their cousins, grandparents, like everybody was murdered, but Sam had one first cousin who survived. And um, his name is Shia, Shia Schloss. And he, and he lived to be 96. 
Mm. And he died just this year oh, wow. from COVID. Oh, wow. Right. But during the time that I was writing this book, I talked to him all the time. And he was, I, I would, he lives outside of, outside of New York City and I'd go visit him whenever I went to New York. And he, I interviewed him a lot for filling in a lot of gaps. Um, and then I, I interviewed anybody I could find that kind of was in the sphere of, you know, the Treblinka related stuff or hiding in the woods. And I found different Polish historians who've done a ton of research about um, documenting what life was like hiding, hiding for the Jews who tried to hide in the woods. Um, so I was able to fill in gaps from other people's work and from other people talking to them. How, how big are we talking this pit? Like, what, what's the size of this? I'm curious. Of Like, how, what, what do they live in? Well, it's hard to know what it was 75 years ago. Right. Um, when we saw it, I would say, well, my husband just kind of stepped right into it. And it kind of, he kind of, um, it kind of went up to like his chest, basically, when he stepped down into it. But it, but when they were living there, it was definitely bigger. There were three of them actually living in the pit. It was Sam and Esther and this other, um, a, a teenage boy actually that was um, Esther had a first husband who was killed in the in the Polish in the forest when they first started hiding from mm. by a by a Polish person, and because the Polish people would get a reward if they would find a Jew and kill them and turn them into the Germans, and so oh. Esther's husband was unfortunately murdered in that way. But his his brother had been hiding with they'd been hiding together, the three of them. So then it was just Esther and her teenage brother-in-law. And then Sam joined the experience after he escaped from Treblinka. So it was the three of them. And but but clearly it was deep. The pit was deep because the the Stish family members described to us how they had a pulley system with a rope, a black rope. They like described the rope to us. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. They said they had this rope. There were a couple ropes. One rope was that they would pull, and then the top would, the you know this wood top that they had built with what was camouflage would come over the pit thing. Like once they were in, they could pull it pull it over, and then they could then pull the thing and it would go off. And then there was a separate rope that they could climb up to get out of the pit. I don't think it was like you know, like the subway station or something, but it right. was it was it was deep enough that they had to climb out with a rope. Um, so it was, it had to be big enough for three people to lie down because they, they slept in that pit. So, you know, imagine three people lying down and that's probably wow. how big the pit was. That's insane. I mean, I can't even imagine. It's just, it's just really insane. Um, that whole story. Uh, so thank you for sharing a little bit of that. Um, what is so you you did this whole gather obviously this this big family trip which seemed like it was just awesome in general just to kind of get get you all together get over there and and see some of the uh the the family history if you will or learn about it what happens then like what's the editing process look like with that that's you know you, so you have all these notes you have all this stuff like what's the editing process how do you get it in a book form where it's actually readable right so the first thing I did was I had a, I had a, a vision of what, how I was going to write it. And it was going to be until Sam and Esther meet each other where they, they would come together in, in the story. Um, Cause I wanted to start the story even before the war to give a flavor for the reader of what their lives were like mm -hmm. before 1939, September 1st, 1939, which changed everything. And um, 
so I, I, I thought, okay, I'll do a chapter of Sam, a chapter of Esther, and then a chapter of like my experience. And I would weave it one, two, three, one, two, three, and like kind of take the, and then my, the chapter about something that happened to me would be related to what I wrote about them. And so I started writing it that way. And then I ended up hiring, I got a, a, a recommendation from someone that I know um, that there's this wonderful woman, her name is Jennifer McCord, um, who he had hired when he wrote, he wrote a number of baseball related books. And um, he, for, but the first one, he used to be a businessman and he left that to write these books. And so um, we had something in common. And so he, but he recommended that I meet with her because she knows the, the, the publishing industry uh, very, very well. She's been doing it her whole career and that she was phenomenally helpful to him. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll, that's a great idea. So I met with her and I told her my whole story. And then I gave her these first few chapters. I think I had like, you know, eight chapters written and, um, you know, drafts, obviously I knew that they needed a lot more work, but so she read them and then we met and she, what I love, I love many things about this woman, Jennifer, but one of the things that I love the most is that just straightforward. She's not, she didn't start out by saying, oh, you did such a nice job. This is what I like. And da, 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 da. And then here's some ideas for change. No, she was just like, this doesn't work. <laughs> it was great. She said, this doesn't work. I'm like, okay, tell me why. And what, and what's, is there, do you have an idea for a solution? And she said, yes, it doesn't work because it's too many stories. The reader can't follow all three stories at one time. It's too much for the reader. But so you're, and she said that, that what happened to me, I had told her, you know, some of the stuff that had happened to me in my journey she said, your journey is like its own story, but obviously it's related to your, your in-laws story. She said, what you need to do is split this into two and write their story, like from a third person perspective. And then second half of the book is your story from a first person perspective, because they have different voices. And so um, I was like, and as soon as she said it, I was like, oh, that's a great idea, of course. And so I went back and, you know, started over again. And because, um, of course, it would be different. And uh, then I just started writing. And she said, focus on Sam and Esther's story first. Don't even think about your story. Just do theirs. Get that on paper. And then you'll do yours. I'm like, okay, cool. So I tried it. And, um, yeah, so I just started writing and, um, I, she, I would give her chapters and she would give me feedback. She wasn't like an editor, like, you know, going through every like misspelling and all that kind of stuff. But gave, she gave me conceptual ideas, which was very helpful. But to be honest, it was during that, uh, like intense writing period when my son and daughter-in-law had just moved back to Seattle. Uh, well, my son moved back to Seattle. My daughter-in-law is from California. Um, but they had moved here and they didn't have a place to live. They were going to look for a rental. They wanted to be in this neighborhood. And so they moved in with us and they lived with us for like six months. And it was during that six month period that I was doing a lot, a lot of writing. It was like a really intense time. Mm -hmm. And so I would write all day and then I would come up and we would have dinner together, all four of us. And I would read parts or all of the chapter that I wrote that day to my audience. And so to get feedback and the Honestly, I mean, my daughter-in-law was great. My husband had certain comments, but it was really hard for my husband to hear his parents' story told because of the emotional, um, let's just say, baggage that comes along with that. So it was hard for him. 
but my son had enough distance. It's his grandparents, but he had a lot of distance. He was my best feedback guy. He was just like, he would make me feel like I had done a great job and give me really great constructive criticism, mm -hmm. constructive strategies. And then, and then I would go the next day and I would rewrite it. And, you know, so he was terrific. Jennifer McCord was terrific, but I was just dogged. And I followed every lead. Like if I had a lead in a, even in a footnote of a, of a book and it would say a name of somebody, let's say about whatever it was I was in the middle of, I would find that person and write them an email and see if they would talk to me. Like I, I wrote to Timothy Snyder, you know, he's a really famous historian at Yale who wrote a couple of different books about World War II and one specifically about the Holocaust. And um, <clears throat> I was trying to find something specific information about something he had said in, in his book. And so I wrote him an email and um, his assistant actually responded to me. And um, he wasn't, I don't want to diss Timothy Snyder. He's a great historian. He wasn't particularly helpful for my problem, but mm -hmm. Um, but I did get a response from somebody in his office, which was nice. But a lot of people responded and helped me find the pieces that I needed to put together or or read a part of it. If for historical, like the whole Treblinka section I gave to a person who's written a number of books about Treblinka, and he gave me fantastic, like, you know, corrections, really. So that was really, I had a lot of really great people to help me, honestly. How did you know when you were done? This is something that mm -hmm. comes up a lot because, you know, you always want to retool. I can change that sentence here, that word there, that has that the right placement? Like, when did you say, okay, line in the sand, this thing is complete? Um, I think when Jennifer told me it was, I had this other person outside of myself who had been, who had, was very, had, she works for a publishing company. She'd worked for, she'd done everything in the publishing world. And, um, and she's like, it's ready. It's ready go. Did you self-publish or did you use a publisher? I did. That was actually, I self-published. That was actually a super, super difficult um, and very personal decision. And, um, and it's, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm a little embarrassed about it, but I'm not terribly embarrassed about it. I did a pros and cons list. And one of the things, one of the cons that came up when you think about sending out letters to, you know, to publishers and to agents, you, you know, I, I know from everybody that I've talked to in the class that I took that you have to send out, like, to even get anybody to write back to you, you have to send like a hundred letters. And usually you don't hear from anybody. And, or if you do, you hear no. So I just, in part, I just, I wanted the book to get out into the world. Mm -hmm but I just didn't know that I wanted to go through all that rejection. Yeah. It was going to be, and I know that every, everyone, it happens to everyone. It wasn't, it's not like personal, you know? Um, I just felt like I don't really have to put myself through that. I'm like, you know, I've just turned 60. So when I was doing this, it was a few years ago already. So I was like, you know, 57. I was like, I'm 57. Do I really need a hundred different people telling me they don't want to publish or help me publish my book? And I'm like, hmm. I don't think so. There were a lot of pros and cons. I really had to had to weigh it all out. At the end of the day, uh, I decided to to self publish, and I'm um, I'm not sorry. It's been it's it's been it was it was a really easy process, and um, the book is out. It's in libraries, even though it's self published. It's in 
bookstores, not all the bookstores, but it's in certain bookstores and it's not hard to get a book if you want it. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, self-publishing, I mean, I think that's the only way to go Uh, to be perfectly frank. I mean, that the online opportunities, I mean, what Amazon's done with their KDP publishing, I don't know if you use Amazon or Mm -hmm. is that what you use? Yeah. Like there's, it seems like this is the simplest route because yeah, to your point, not that, you know, getting a publisher and, and those type of things would be nice, but all the strings that come with it as well, you know, what you have to give up, the control, those type of things, I think. You, are, are, you give up all your ownership. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that doesn't sound like a good plan. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm not sorry that I did it this way. There were a lot of pros and a lot of cons, but I would just say like, that was something that I had to think about, about how many times do you want to get a no before you get a yes? I mean, I was sure that I would get a yes, but it could be, you know, I know I have, I know other people who did that for two years before they got somebody to say yes. Yeah. And I was like, I don't really, that's just, no, I don't want to do that. How did you get it out then the story? Like what did you have some launch strategy that you worked on that was, that, that worked or what, what were some of the, any, any, you know, tips you'd share? Yeah, well, I, I hired I hired somebody for my launch. I hired um, a, um, a media guy, um, someone who had been working in, in books and media for his whole career. He was excellent, and he helped me uh, to figure out a launch strategy. And uh, I worked really. I mean, it became my job, honestly, for for a good year. And I and I said to myself, I'm going to give myself a year. This is going to be my job to get out there and talk about the book and, and try to publicize it. Um, and, um, I just contacted, you know, tons of media. I focused because it's a Holocaust book. So it's very a specific genre with a specific audience. Honestly, um, I focused on Holocaust centers and synagogues and, um, I got a bunch, I got a number of awards. I, I, one of the things that Jennifer told me to do, she said, here's a list of award places that would be appropriate for your book. You should, even though I thought it was a scam in the beginning, because they mm-hmm. charge you a hundred dollars, most of them to put in the application. And I said to her, I said, this is a scam. They're just charging me money and they're, I'm never going to get the, the award. And she said, you know, they're not scams. They charge the money because they have to pay their staff to like go through all this stuff. Like it takes people to like, mm-hmm. you get the book and you got to assign the book out to readers and like, there's work that has to be done to like do these awards. So I took her advice and I just sent them out and I ended up getting two really nice awards. And um, one is, was for in the independent publishers association for his, for history, which made me so happy because the category was, was history because I had, I had tried so hard to bring the history into the story. So that one made me super happy. And the other one was a, um, a, Washington, a Washington State Award um, called the, the Nancy Pearl Award that's given here in the Pacific, Pacific Northwest, really, Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. Writers Association. And that's a very prestigious award here locally. So I got those two awards. So I got some media attention. And, and then I just, once I met somebody, I would follow up with them. And then just, I did a whole big, um, book tour that I did myself. You know, I, I did, I did it all, all the planning of it myself and just somebody would say, you should talk to this person. And I would talk to that person. And, you know, I was pretty dogged about getting it done. Um, and I have a blog and I have a website. And, um, then I started this, I also started this, this new podcast about, about a year ago. It's a 60 second podcast, 60 says they call it a flash briefing. 
Um, but I heard about it. I just hear about things. And then I'm like, oh, I'll try that. So I heard about this and I was like, oh, I'll try that. So um, it's called Gratitude in a Minute. And it's a 60 second daily podcast. You can get it on Alexa or any podcast server that you like. But what led me to that was the, that moment when I saw the pit in the forest. And it kind of, it, not kind of, it dramatically changed my attitude about how I live my life. And when I looked in the pit, I realized that I had taken so much in my life for granted. Uh, you know, I have a nice house, I have a refrigerator that has food in it. I've got a closet full of clothes. And my in-laws lived in that pit with nothing for a year. And that was a moment of change for me. And since that time, I've been really thinking a lot about gratitude and kindness and how to be even yet, and not that I was a bad person, but like try to even be a better person. And um, so I decided to do this. I was doing like daily gratitude journal and doing all these things about gratitude. And I heard about this. I'm like, I'm going to do that. So I've been doing it. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, like, and, and maybe you would disagree with me, but just from hearing the story today of kind of your, your, your life, if you will, in a, in a quick, you know, uh, flash briefing of your life. <laughs> and uh, if I if I could use that term, but you kind of just went through life and just, you know, not that you weren't happy or anything like that, but you had the family, you had the law practice kind of went through that. And then all of a sudden this shift happened. And now that it seems like this whole new idea of learning, whether it's writing the book, the podcast, the gratitude journal, all this like new endeavor, which, which basically shows there's no, there's no like age, like, Oh, you have, if you're, you're too old to do this or that, like, it doesn't matter you know, everyone evolves at different times or sees different things at certain points. It's a matter think, of, you, yeah, you take a grasp of it, right? Hi, sorry. Karen, uh, yeah, yeah, that's all right. Karen, jump, it, something, something must have happened. I don't know if it was my internet or yours. That's all right. Jump in and answer it. I'll edit it in. It's not a big deal. Yeah, that's okay. That was an internet blip. Uh, I, I do think, I agree with what you're saying, though. I think that, um, you know, as long as we are alive, we can do new things and learn new things. And we can change. And it's just part of the human endeavor, which is such a, an exciting thing to be part of. And I think that, um, I think you're right. I was just sort of doing, doing, and I had a nice life. I had a great life. I still have a great life. I'm so happy with my life. I've been happy every stage of my life. Everything I've done has been interesting and rewarding. But the fact that I could change it so dramatically, and that, but then that decision to do that, to change my career, and change my life. Like I didn't go to an office every day. I like made a home office. It was a very different lifestyle. I went down, you know, I used to go downtown every day and whatever, it's different. But the fact that that has led me to learn so much new, so many new things and have so many new experiences has just re reinforced the, the pleasure of being alive, honestly. So it's been, it's been just a fantastic journey. What would you share? You know, I always like to go back um, kind of as a lasting impression. You know, I like to use the post-it note. You have one message to give someone. Maybe it's yourself when you were a kid, right? A teenager, 
to help you on your journey a little bit further, you know, maybe it's that post-it note sitting on the computer or whatever. Is there a piece of advice of all the learning you've had over the years that you would share with that younger self um, just to, to help them just a little bit more on their path? Yeah, I would say to my younger self and to anybody, <clears throat> don't take what you have for granted. Because the minute, if you can live your life not taking what you have for granted, like that would be my post-it, post-it note. I don't have one, but I probably should. Don't, don't take your life for granted or what you have in your life for granted. Because uh, if you can live your life that way, then not only are you going to live every day more fully, potentially more fully, but you also are open to things that might change for you. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that allowing that openness to be in your life is, is you can do it in part by thinking about your appreciation for what you have and the people in your life. Right. And I think that that would be, that would be my message to myself and to others. Yeah. Because I mean, life is, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's happen later today. Like, but it is kind of like that, you know, ever evolving thing. Like we don't know what opportunities are going to come or, or tragedy or whatever, but it's like how we deal with that, how we move forward. And, and again, I think if you have that, that gratitude, as you were mentioning, um, it, it just makes the perspective of it, um, I guess, much more positive and, and best way to say it, you know, you know, what's the, so what's the, the follow-up plan here? So you have this book out, you've had it. What, what are you doing next? You talk about the podcast, any other writing that you're excited yeah. about? What are you, what yeah, are you doing? So what, next? Yeah, I'm writing. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a, I'm writing a book about my family. Okay. It's a very different story. My earliest ancestors came to Seattle, Seattle in 18, 1847. Hmm. So uh, it's a really much, it's a, um, it's a Seattle pioneer story more Jewish it's it's a Jewish family so it it has that aspect of it but it was really it's a very very just not a holocaust story but um but that's been leading me to a lot of really fun and interesting uh discoveries about my own family because one of the things like when I talk to when I talk to groups I do a lot of talking to students Um, through our own Seattle Holocaust Center and then just different, the different book events that I do. Hmm. I always try to leave the audience with like three main messages. One is about gratitude that we've already discussed. Another really is about choices that we all have choices to make because for example, like the Stish family members, when they helped Sam and Esther, when they were in hiding, that was a tough choice to make, but they made that choice and they stuck with it. And, you know, maybe we don't make decisions and choices that are quite that high of a magnitude, that life and death kind of thing, or maybe we, we do in COVID. I think we're all making certainly life and death decisions, which just by going outside of our house and wearing a mask or not. So I think that we do make choices and that the importance of our choices shouldn't be underestimated. Um, so that's another one. And then the third one though, really is that, you know, I did this research and wrote this book about my in-laws, about my husband's family, but we all have, have family and our families have stories. Maybe not a Holocaust story. Maybe it's a different story. But are you the holder of that story? Is your grandparent the holder of that story? Try to find out that information while it's still available to you. Because as time marches on, it becomes harder to get the information. And because next generation or the generation after is going to be like, darn it, why didn't great grandma Karen, you know, tell us more about her life. I wish I knew more about, about her. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so I kind of decided to take my own advice. And I've been on this, this uh, research journey, which has been really fun. Um, dealing with digging deep into Seattle's history. So it's, that's what I'm doing now. And then the gratitude in a minute, and I'm doing my blog posts. So I'm still pretty busy with all that stuff. Awesome. And where can everyone find you online? Where's the best spot? Uh, well, my website is karentriger.com. So that's a pretty easy place to, to go. If you go there, you can find information about the book and the gratitude in a minute and the blog post. There's links to everything there. But the, I mean, the book's on Amazon and there's, it's also on, it's an audible. It's uh, if you like listening, You'll love it. The, the narrator is fantastic. And um, yeah, that's it. That's awesome. Yeah. This has been really fun. I, uh, again, coming in these conversations, you never know how it's going to go. You always, you know, interesting stories. So I really appreciate you going deep in some of these areas and uh, really fascinating stuff. And um, yeah, excited to see this, uh, this new book uh, whenever it comes out as well. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited too. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was wonderful to meet you and get a chance to, to chat. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that great interview. And thanks again for stopping by the Just Get Started podcast. Uh, Grateful to have you here. And if I could just make one quick ask before you run along on your day, you know, I've grown this podcast organically over the last three plus years. And it's from the great listeners that pick up, you know, a quote or a key learning or just enjoy the entertainment of the podcast and they share it out to their audience. They leave a review on Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. Um, And I'd ask that for you as well. If you've made it to this point and are listening in, um, a lot of the podcast uh, platforms that you listen on have a share button right there where you can share it out to your audience on various platforms. So I would be so appreciative if you wouldn't mind taking a quick second to do that um, if you really enjoyed this episode. So thanks again. Happy to connect online. I always love to meet new people. So if you want to go to my website, brianondraco.com, or connect with me. I'm at Brian Andreco, basically everywhere on Instagram, Twitter, even Clubhouse, that new app that's out there. Uh, you name it. So uh, follow me online and uh, certainly look forward to connecting further. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Mm-hmm.